Well, let me begin by saying I am so glad that you're here with us this morning. Many, many places you could have uh, chosen to go. Lots of things you could have decided to do this morning with your time. And I'm so glad that you are here among God's people in worship, giving yourselves to one another, to the study and devotion of God's word. Uh, These are good things. This is right for the people of God that we gather, that we lift God's name high, that we sing together, that we encourage one another, that we hold one another accountable. This is good. And I just want to remind you of that this morning. We are here for a good reason today. We are here to lift God's name high, to give him glory, that we might seek to be a people that model Christ Jesus to the world and to each other, right? That's why we're here. And as we do that, we open God's word. And uh, God's word is rich for us. Uh, we're in Isaiah 47 this morning. If you want to turn your, uh, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 47 with me. We've been studying the book of Isaiah together for quite some time. And uh, we're all the way at chapter 47, which uh, we've got a little ways to go. It's, it's good. Isaiah is full of the great truths of God. I hope that you have noticed uh, maybe a, a common theme or, or one way that we can um, really explore Isaiah together. And maybe uh, I just wonder, what will we remember when we walk away from our study in Isaiah for this time? And I hope one thing, one thing, one central truth that you're seeing presented over and over and over again from the text It's not that just, I I hope that you have seen, it's not just that I'm seeing it. It is present in the text. It is in our face. It is being presented to us from the text. Is that God, in the midst of all circumstances throughout all of history, is the sovereign God of all creation. And there is no one who can rival him or ever will. This is a great comfort to our hearts. And should you find yourself in need of comfort, which is often, remember who your God is. He is the sovereign Lord of history and there is none who can rival him. And guess what? If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are his beloved child. So you are held in the hands of a loving father, not any old loving father, but the sovereign God of all creation is the one who holds you and loves you. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Remember that this morning as we approach the word. Okay, so let's look at it together. Isaiah 47, beginning in verse 1. Let's look first at verses 1 through 4. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers, and your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. All right, so let's look at what's happening here. So if you remember back to last week, if you were there, if you were, if you were here with us, or maybe if you've caught up uh, with what we studied through Isaiah 46 last week, is we were introduced to uh, the pantheon of gods and a couple of gods in particular that they were parading through the streets. Remember that? And uh, God was saying that no longer are people going to bow down to them, but now they themselves are going to bow down to the God of all creation. Their downfall is coming. You remember this? And so it's within that context now we come here. So what we see happening already is that the gods of the Babylonians, the Babylonians themselves, are being dishonored, disgraced, and humiliated. That's, That's humiliation, isn't it? To take the gods that you prize and that you lift up and you set on their throne and you say, deliver me, are now being paraded out into captivity and are themselves now bowing down. The thing that you put your hope and trust in is now bowing down to another. So what does that tell you? And so here we have this picture of disgrace, dishonor, and humiliation that is continuing into chapter 47 with us but it's disgrace and dishonor from another angle. So let's hear what God's saying here. 
Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Here's the picture. The picture is that Babylon as a whole is being represented as this spotless, pure, tender, delicate princess. That's it. That's, that's how Babylon is viewing themselves. And if you are a tender, delicate, spotless princess of the kingdom, you are untouchable. Right? Just imagine that. Imagine this princess that the great city of Babylon is protecting their beloved princess, right? So you're untouchable. No one can touch me. I'm royalty, and I'm tender and I'm delicate. Don't, don't get near me. This is how Babylon is portrayed here. Now, here's what will happen to that virgin daughter. Sit on the ground without a throne, so this princess is dethroned. You shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone and grind flour. Do, do princesses grind flour, grind their own flour? Absolutely not. Put off your veil. This is talking about purity here. You can understand. Strip off your robe and uncover your legs. We understand what that means. Pass through the rivers and your nakedness will be uncovered. Humiliation, do you hear it? Utter humiliation. And your disgrace shall be seen, and I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. No one. And who will do this? It says, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. So we get that, that picture from verses 1 through 3, right? This great city Babylon is being portrayed as this tender, delicate woman. And so God then says, no longer are you going to be tender and delicate. Instead, you're going to be humiliated and disgraced, and you're going to do the work of a servant off of a throne. So everything's going to be changed around for you. And who's going to do this? God, what's his name? The Lord of hosts is his name. Do you see that in your text? The Lord of hosts is his name. Of what significance is that? Now, if you, maybe you're familiar with this title of God, Lord of Hosts. Are you? Are you familiar with this title, Lord of Hosts? Well, at least you've heard it. We're familiar with it. But what does it mean when God is named Lord of Hosts? Now, in your Bible, most likely, Lord is in capital letters, yes? L-O-R-D. Which means that it's the name Yahweh. But it's Lord, okay? So, when, you're, when you would read this in Hebrew, you would see... Yahweh, and then later on, as the Masoretes added these vowels, and, but they added the vowels not of Yahweh, but of Adonai. So you would know when you got to it, don't say Yahweh, say Adonai. So it's translated Lord. Okay? So, Yahweh what? Yahweh, Sava, which means, that word means army. That's what the word means. So it means Yahweh of armies, it's in plural, the God of armies. So Lord of hosts is, in a sense, God of armies, God of many hosts, not of regular, just ordinary people, but of warriors, God of warriors, God of armies. Who says this to almighty Babylon? The Lord of hosts says it. Now that has significance, doesn't it? The Lord of hosts has said to you, Babylon, you might be wondering already, because I can see I have a particular perspective on the, on, the, on, the, on the crowd here. You're wondering of what relevance is this to me for an ancient city that has come and gone. It's coming. It's coming. Don't worry. Let's establish our context in the text. The, the text hasn't talked about us yet. So let's just see what the text has to say. Okay? We'll get there. Lord of hosts, God of armies. And on that day, there is a day coming where there will be vengeance and redemption that occur simultaneously. And I just want you to see that. This is a significant point. I will take, verse 3, I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. That sounds horrible, right? Do you want to be part of that? Vengeance where God spares no one? Because if God spares no one, who is he not sparing? You and me. Yeah, me too. No one. I don't like that. 
I don't like God's vengeance, but it's coming. And he's sparing no one. But simultaneously, look at what verse 4 says. Our Redeemer. There is redemption. Simultaneously, there is vengeance and redemption. Not all are consumed by the vengeance of God. So if you're thinking that, you know, later on the church kind of added this idea that, you know, the Old Testament God is, you know, real mean and the New Testament God, I like him, he's real nice and that's where Jesus is with all the children and, you know, animals and things. That's the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament is real mean. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He has never changed. He has never changed. There was and there will be a day where two things happen simultaneously and that is vengeance and redemption. Vengeance and redemption. I want to read for you just a a few verses out of Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy was written, and these events occurred before or after the events of Isaiah. A lot before, a long time before, a long time before. I just want you to keep that in mind. Here's what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning in verse 35. What does he say? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. The day of their calamity is at hand. Their doom will come swiftly for the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants. And when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering, let them raise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he. There is no God beside me. Listen to what God says. I kill and I make alive. That's a strong statement, isn't it? I wound and I heal. You see, God gets both sides. You cannot take God and put him in a box, as many do, as only ever being the God were good and healing and prosperity and redemption and all these like really good words. And then you confine all the bad, like anything that we consider bad, you know, like death and wounds. That's the work of Satan and his demons. Or whatever else is bad, rebellious humanity, right? So God only works in the realm of what we like, and the stuff that we don't like, everything else operates in that realm. But God wants to make something very, very clear very early on. Don't misunderstand what you're seeing and what you experience. I am the God of all of it. No one dies apart from me. No one lives apart from me. No one is wounded apart from me. No one is healed apart from me. So don't get it wrong. There is no other God beside me. Do you hear how it is in the text? This is what's being said. So then he continues. Now I'm still in Deuteronomy 32 here. I'm about to be done here. He says, I, I wound, I, or I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hands take hold of judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives from their long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with them, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. Do you hear both sides? Do you hear redemption and do you hear vengeance? Did you hear both right there? I'll say it, I'll I'll read it again. Rejoice with him, O heavens, and bow down to him, all gods. Here's why. Because he avenges the blood of his children and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and he cleanses his people's land. Okay, so do you... Hear how God operates. So what I'm saying to you is what God promised in Deuteronomy 32, God is now doing with his people in Babylon. Do you hear how parallel these ideas are? In a day, there will be utter humiliation 
of the great city Babylon. Why? Because God has promised vengeance on all those who hate him. And he has promised redemption for all of his people, for all of his children. That point has to be solidified before we move on. So let's look at verse 5 now. So he says, Sit in silence, go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. I'll have to say here, just remember that the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. Okay, it's the same people. Chaldeans refers to the people, the ethnic group, whereas Babylon refers to the city where the Chaldeans are from. So parallel ideas, okay? So sit in silence, go in darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called mistress of kingdoms. So uh, we'll pause right there just for a second. Mistress of kingdoms, I I was telling Jimmy earlier, I I think that um, this word here, mistress, is misleading because uh, we we contemporarily have a different definition of what mistress means, don't we? Uh, That's not what the word means here. If you know what the contemporary usage of that word is, that's not what it means here. This word mistress is the feminine version of the masculine lord or master. So it's simply lord, master, but in the feminine, which in other places is translated queen or queen mother. Okay, so you have called yourself queen of kingdoms. Do you hear how maybe different that sounds to us? And then he says, so I was angry with my people though. So, so you call yourself queen of kingdoms. But I was angry with my people and I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. So notice God at work. What did God do? God was angry with his people. We remember that. The reason they're led into Babylonian captivity and why the Assyrians came on the northern kingdom of Israel is because God was not satisfied with his people. His people were rebellious people seeking out other gods. And so he brought punishment. He didn't bring punishment without the prophets. Right? The prophets came. They spoke to them the word. And they still. You remember at the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah 6. What do you want me to say to the people, Lord? Remember Isaiah went, he was really excited. Who shall I send? And Isaiah said, me, send me, send me. And so he said, okay, I'll send you. What message am I going to say to the people? Keep on hearing, but do not hear. Keep on seeing, but do not see. It's not a good message. So the prophets come with a message, but the people had dull hearts. They couldn't hear. They couldn't see the word of God. And so it had no impact on their life. So pause right there. We are not unlike them, right? How often the word of God is brought to us and opened before us and we see it plain as day. And yet at the same time, it's as if we never saw it. It's as if we never heard it. The word of God makes no impact in our life and our hearts remain dull. Could it be the case that this has ever been true for you? Why is that? God sends his word. The people are rebellious toward him and so God was angry with them. And he gave them into the hand of the Babylonians. Who gave them into the hand of the Babylonians? God did. Did the Babylonians do this by their own strength and power and wisdom and might? No. God did it. God raised up this nation. God had a plan for the Babylonians. And it is God and God alone that gave his people into the hand of the Babylonians. And if he had chosen not to, he would have done exactly what he did with the Assyrians. Do you remember that? The Assyrians just previously came on the capital city there in the southern kingdom, Jerusalem. And they had all these hundreds of thousands of troops and there's little Jerusalem. And yet God sent his angel and wiped them out. Instantaneously, gone. God can do that, you know. So if God wants to deliver into a nation, he'll do it. If he doesn't, then he won't. You see how powerful our God is? This is what he did here. So he gave them into the hand of the Babylonians, but here's the problem God has with Babylon. The princess. You showed no mercy on them. And on the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. And you said, I will be mistress or queen forever. 
so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. This is a good time for you uh, in your personal study, reading the Word. If you're, uh, maybe if you're in between things and, and you don't know what to read right now in your Bible. And I talk to many and they say, one of the, one of the issues I have is I just, I've not been reading the Bible like I should. And that's a common experience, okay? A great thing to read through right now that will partner well with our study through Isaiah is the book of Daniel. So if you want to read the book of Daniel right now, it'd be incredible. You're going to find so many parallels and you're going to actually find, see, what we're reading in Isaiah is a prophecy of the future. What you read in Daniel is how that prophecy plays out. And you see all that God has promised actually working out in reality. So Daniel, remember, is in Babylonian captivity. And then God uses Daniel to speak to the kings of Babylon and they have dreams, and he interprets them. And he says, your downfall is coming. That's where the whole handwriting on the wall situation comes from. And then they're gone. All of that's in Daniel. I want to encourage you to go in and read Daniel and to see how all these things are playing out. But I just want to read one verse here. This is Daniel 2.21. Daniel 2.21 says this. Now, this is not very far into the book of Daniel, is it? Daniel 2.21. He changes times and seasons... He removes kings and he sets up kings. And he gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. This is Daniel's words. Daniel is praising God. Remember, Daniel was a, you know, a, a, a poetic guy. And so he, he's, he's saying these things in such a way that he's giving praise back to God. And he's saying, God has done all these things. And it is he who changes the seasons even, and I understand that. It is he who sets up kings. It is he who tears kings down, and I trust in that, and I know that. He said that in Babylonian captivity. That's significant, isn't it? God was angry with his people, and he used the Babylonians as much as, listen, as much as he used the Pharaoh in Egypt, as much as he used the Assyrians with the northern kingdom of Israel, as much as he used Joseph's brothers, as much as he used Judas Iscariot, as much as he used Pontius Pilate. How did all these people get to their position of authority where they had these interactions with history that changed, it seems? History. What if Judas Iscariot had not betrayed Jesus? Is that possible? No, it, actually it wasn't possible because all these things happened exactly according to God's predetermined plan. Was it possible that Pharaoh would have said, okay, you guys just go ahead? Was it possible? No, it was not possible. Was it possible that someone else would have been in power rather than that Pharaoh? Was it possible that Joseph's brothers would have been kind and caring and loving and accepting of their little brother? No. Was it possible that the Assyrians would have said, just let them be, we don't need any more land? No. Because God raised them up for that purpose. Do you see it? It's plain as day. So can we just pause for a second and say, however crazy, please listen to me, however crazy things seem to us in the news and the media with wars and nations and money and politics, listen, there is nothing new here. There is nothing new here. And by the way, yes, evil will come, as it always has. And God has a particular plan for it, as he always has. There is no one raising up into power that should not be there. It comes from God. Romans 13, 1 and 2, you can read that. There is no one who enters into a place of power and authority unless God has given it. So trust in that. And don't get too bent out of shape. Do you remember, by the way, who was in charge of the Roman Empire while Jesus was alive and while the, uh, the apostles were alive? Well, let's think of the guy who had the, the, the largest reign there, okay? And his name was Nero. Nero a good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. 
And so therefore Jesus said, I don't know how this guy got into power. I don't know. What, what are we going to do? Let's overthrow the government and get a better guy there. Let's, let's, let's spend all our energy doing that. That's not what he did. Instead, he preached the good news of the kingdom and said, repent, believe on me, and you will have salvation. It's not changed. Do you, do you see it? It's not changed. There's comfort in that, right? There should be comfort in that. You have shown no mercy. Your yoke was exceedingly heavy. You said, I will be queen forever. And you did not lay any of these things to heart. This is God speaking to Babylon. You did not consider their end. So just think with me. When was the book of Isaiah written? About the year 742, 701? And when did these things play out? About 100 years later. God already said it. And yet still, they didn't perceive their end or lay these things to heart. Isaiah 47, verses 8 and 9. It's not looking so good for the Babylonians, right? We got that picture so far? But it's looking really good for the children of God. Did you get that so far? Okay, good. I hope you got both. Now, therefore, hear this. You lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in a day, and the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. What's happening here? So, uh, I want to reference, if you're a note taker, I want you to write down a reference here. Revelation 18, verses 1 through 20. Revelation 18, verses 1 through 20. We're going to get there in just a second. Um, God is saying, you set yourself up in this high privileged position. You believe you're untouchable. No one can touch you. You're pure. You have knowledge. You have wisdom. And you have all power. You're ruling over the nations. Anybody you touch is afraid of you. So what's going to happen? What's your downfall? Hear this, you lovers of pleasure. You, you sit in security and you say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I will not sit as a widow or experience the loss of children. In other words, no great misery is ever going to befall me and I'm going to live in my pleasures for all eternity. You can't touch me. You can't do anything bad to me. Nothing is going to happen. This is how that nation set themselves up. This was the heart cry of the people of Babylon. Now, Babylon did fall. We know that, don't we? Babylon did fall from a period of about five, uh, 605, 586. And then that's when Cyrus uh, came in and the Persian Empire took over. And I showed you last week what Babylon looks like today, right? Does it look like a big, flourishing, booming city? Lots of people? No, it's in ruins. Most of the ruins are even gone. So it's, it's gone, right? I just want you to see with me, we're about to go to Revelation 18, but I just want you to see with me that Babylon is gone and has been for quite some time. So turn to Revelation 18, and uh, as you are, do you know, by the way, I'll just give you a little, I thought this was interesting. You remember uh, Saddam Hussein? How can you not? You remember Saddam Hussein? Do you know that he believed that he was, in some respect, a reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? And that is why he made efforts to rebuild Babylon and restore it. And he built himself a palace right outside the ruins. I was going to show that to you last week. I didn't. But in the aerial image, you can see the palace that he set up right next to the ruins of Babylon because he thought that he was going to be the next ruler of the world from Babylon, just like Nebuchadnezzar. Interesting, huh? So what does Revelation 18 have to do with any of this? Revelation 18 coming maybe some six, 700 years later, Babylonian Empire gone. Just put that in your mind. Babylonian Empire gone. The, the Roman period has come, right? The Romans are ruling the world. 
So why would we be talking about Babylon anymore? So Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven with great authority. And the earth was made bright with its glory, and he called out with a mighty voice. Listen to what the angel said. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. I don't know, maybe they were behind the times. Maybe they didn't realize Babylon had fallen a long time ago. Babylon doesn't need to fall again, it's in ruins. Well, let's keep reading. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth had committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. This does sound a lot like Babylon, doesn't it? Isn't that the Babylon we're reading about? Well, keep going. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, and lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven. I I believe, uh, I'd have to do some work to prove my point here, but I believe that this is specifically a reference here to the fact that in Babylon was the original site of Babel, right? Something heaped as high as heaven was their goal. But what if they actually heaped as high as heaven? Their sins. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Okay, so their sins are heaped high, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. She has glorified herself and lived in luxury, and so like a measure of torment and mourning, Since in her heart she says, okay, we got there. Listen to what it says next. In her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall not see. Where did that come from? Isaiah 47. John is quoting from Isaiah 47. For, now, when the New Testament, by the way, quotes from what seems to be an obscure reference in the Old Testament, should we perk up and say maybe this helps us to understand how we should interpret what we're reading here in Isaiah 47? How did John understand what Isaiah 47 meant? That's important for us to ask that question. So we'll continue reading just a little bit there, Revelation 18. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. We just read that too. In a single day, this will happen. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and will wail when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So pause right there. We look back at Isaiah 47. And as it says, in verse 9, these two things shall come to you when? In a single moment, these things will come upon you. So that same thing is being referenced here in Revelation 18. Do you see it? It's important that you see it. I keep asking that because if you don't, I'll explain it a little better. It's not a rhetorical question. Are you there with me? Do you see the parallel? Okay. All right. So, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys the cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth. This is a lot of good stuff. Silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood. All kinds of articles of ivory and costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, slaves, that is human souls. For the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. Your delicacies and your splendors are lost and never to be found. The merchants of these waters who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed with fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. In a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. In a single moment of time, all this grand splendor of a city, gone. All 
All the shipmasters and the seafaring men, sailors, all who trade on the sea, who stood far off, they cried, what city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads. This is mourning, right? And they wept, they mourned, crying out, alas, alas, the great city who had ships and grew rich by her wealth. In a single hour, she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven. What? Do you hear all the horrible things that were just said about this city? And then at the very end, it says, so what should you do with all that information? Rejoice, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. That maybe that didn't go like you thought it was going to go. Why did these things come? God's judgment. Why did these things come upon the nation? God's judgment. Why did these things come upon ancient Babylon? Because of God's judgment. Babylon is set up in uh, the New Testament and it becomes kind of a representation of how evil manifests itself in the masses of the world. And that is why Peter, for example, I have that reference here, 1 Peter 5.13, what does he say? She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Peter said that, and where was he living? In Rome. Rome is not Babylon, but to him it was. Why? Because it's the manifestation of evil on the earth, impending judgment from God. He sees this evil all around him, but he knows in the midst of living in this city, Rome, God's judgment is going to come. Do you hear the message? In spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments, back in Isaiah 47, you cannot escape. Look at verses 10 through 15. Yes, back in Isaiah 47, verses 10 through 15. We'll finish out our passage. You felt... Uh, verse 10 is, is, is really the, the hub, the heart of the message here. Okay, so just highlight verse 10. Know that verse 10 is very important. You felt secure in your wickedness. And you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray and you said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, which you will not be able to atone. Ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. But stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you might be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You were wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they're all like stubble. The fire consumes them. They can't deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction and there is no one to save you. What's being said here? First of all, let me make mention of what's being said in verse 10. It's very important. You felt secure in your wickedness because you said no one sees me. There is a lot of devotional aspect to what was just said right there. You think, we think, that the sins of the heart are not exposed to anyone, and so therefore I can keep them and no one knows. You said, no one sees me, and you felt secure in your wickedness. That is a danger for all of us. If ever thoughts run through your head, well, no one saw me do it, no one heard, because I didn't say anything, I didn't do anything, it all was just in my heart. But yet, you are always seen. By God himself. God looks at the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and he sees and he knows. That's a warning to us because our sinful flesh will want to revert back to how we lived for so long and the passions of our flesh. And we thought to ourselves, no one sees me. That's a warning. And what has brought them to that place? Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray because you said in your heart again, I am and there's no one beside me. 
I'm all that there is. I'm all that there ever will be. I am the king, the God of the universe. No one can touch me. And you might say, well, I, don't, I didn't never say that. But you did in your own way. We all like to set ourselves up as our own gods. No one can touch me. You can't tell me what to do. You can't, that, I, I used to love to say that to my sister when I was young. You can't tell me what to do. And then I said that to the wrong people sometimes. You can't tell me what to do. Well, evidently you can. Okay, you did just tell me what to do. You can't say this to God. God is going to do what he's going to do. And when he stretches out his hand to do a thing, who can turn it back? When God lays hold of someone for judgment, who can weasel out of his grip? You, by your own wisdom and might, can you get away? There are people who think that they have arrived at the pinnacle of knowledge and wisdom in our world, in our world. And they think there is no God. And knowledge and wisdom has led me down this path. And now I know, now I've arrived. And I see that there is no one besides us. That's why Carl Sagan says, yeah, me and this tree, we're made of the same stuff. And when I die, I just become what I was. That's all that there is. I am and there is no other. Wrong. You've got it wrong. And your knowledge and your wisdom led you down that path. And so you say in your heart, no one sees me because there is no one else. But there is a God who sees. And there is a God who brings judgment. But there is a God who also redeems and makes a way out. Right? Because simultaneously, what will happen? Vengeance and redemption. So let's, uh, let, let, let's get there in our text. Oh, there is so much here that I, that I wanted to tell you about. And I, and I just will, I guess I'll, I'll summarize. If you have questions about this because it's fascinating, please let's have that conversation. Do you know that the Babylonians uh, ha- were, were the, the, the originators of uh, modern astrology? It was in Babylon that the astrological practices, all these things came about. They invented it. And so it, it took several stages, though. But they, they did. They divide the stars. How, how long ago was this written? Quite some time ago. It actually started more around Hammurabi's time, which was about maybe a thousand years previous. And so they've been doing this for a long time. And what would they do? Because it says evil's going to fall upon you, and it can't be charmed away, it can't be atoned for, and it can't be known. You hear all those three things? It can't be charmed away, it can't be atoned for, and it can't be known. This was directly related to their practices of astrology. It was related to their magical arts that they were practicing at this particular time. And so, oh, there's a lot of good stuff there. I'm going to have to spare you some of that. But do you remember, so when you read in Daniel, I'm just going to give you homework. Go and read in Daniel and notice the wise men of Babylon in Daniel. Okay? Notice what the king asked for. I had a dream. Anybody who can tell me the dream and its interpretation, I will give all these things to, right? And who's able to do it? God, or Daniel, through God, right? Through Daniel's God alone. But all the other diviners or enchanters and sorcerers, could they do it? They couldn't do it. So they have lots of practices here. And then, by the way, it being atoned for, there were two ways that they could figure out the will of the gods. And all the stars were represented. Oh, this is so good. How can I not tell you this? You need to know. You need to know. They would look up into the sky, into the stars, and do you know what they saw? The gods. Now, the stars weren't actually the gods themselves, but the stars mediated the gods' presence for humanity. So that by looking into the stars and figuring out what was happening and where the sun was in relationship to certain things and the moon and the planets, then you could determine the will of the gods. And there were different gods attached to different planets and things like this. So Marduk, for example, that we talked about last week, he was Jupiter. So when they would look into the sky and they would see Jupiter, there is Marduk, ooh, he's moving. What, what is he about to do? What is his desire? What is his will? And they would figure it out by mapping the stars, dividing the heavens. What is coming upon us as a people? And then another way they could do this is they would cut open animals and dissect their livers. And they would kind of read it like a palm reading. That's interesting stuff, isn't it? But they thought by atoning for it 
and figuring out and knowing what was going to happen from the gods that they could try to direct their path otherwise. But what God says to them is, none of your enchantments are going to work. None of your divining is going to work. Divide the heavens. It's not going to work. Nothing can stop me from doing what I intend to do. Now, I tell you about that and we say, well, what do, what do we think we can do? Are there things that people think they can do to flee the judgment of God? When put in those simple terms, we say, well, yeah, all the time there are things. I think probably and most simply relevant to a culture such as this that we are in, what is the easiest thing we think we can do to avoid the judgment of God? Maybe it's something different than that you think. Because I, unfortunately for many, they believe that it's their good deeds. It's coming to church on Sundays, dressing nice, don't cuss while you're in church. That's not a thing you do. Be polite. Give money to the church. Read your Bible, maybe sometimes. At least say you do when someone asks. And all these things will make you right in the eyes of God. Because that's all God wants. Wrong. None of that can deliver you from the judgment of God. None of it. There is one thing that can, though. There is one thing that can deliver you from the judgment and vengeance of God for rebellion and sin. And what is that? Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Alone. Now, why do we need to be reminded of that? The judgment of God is coming. And soon people will understand all the things that they were holding on to were nothing but stubble. That word for stubble really is talking about chaff, which means it's something itty-bitty that almost weighs nothing. You know, it's the outside of grain, and it's burned up in a moment. And people gather around it from the text, and they try, to, they try to get warm. They try to comfort themselves. But all they're burning is chaff. It doesn't work. It's not going to comfort you. It's not going to give you what you need. Nothing can. Nothing can give you the comfort for your soul that you need but faith in Jesus Christ and devotion to him with your life. Because you do know that the judgment of God does come on believers, right? But the wrath of God does not. Because the wrath of God was absorbed in Jesus Christ. He was a propitiation for our sins. He took the wrath that we deserve for our sins. But yet the judgment of God does fall on believers who are rebellious in their hearts against him, who say in their hearts, I am and there is no other. Did you forget? Did you forget who you are? Did you forget that you were washed, that you were cleansed? That's a warning to us in Scripture. Because we fall back into what we were. And we shouldn't, right? We have to be reminded this morning that the judgment of God is coming. And I, 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 let me just end with, uh, with a couple of verses from Romans and we'll end here, okay, this morning. Go to Romans 2, uh, verse 5. Let's just read a few verses and, and uh, finish here with what this text tells us. I think the point that you should walk away with this morning is summarized very well in this text from Paul. And Paul can say it certainly a lot better than I can. Why? Because this is the very word of God. Let's see what God has to say about these things. Romans 2, 5 through 11, and it says, Because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And if you continue on in Romans, you're going to understand what Paul means by these things because I just told you, if you seek for eternal life and you do good, then God's going to, you know, no wrath for me. 
But you have to understand it in light of all that Paul says in this letter and what he will go on to say is that you are justified by faith in Christ. And all the goodness that you have is not yours. It's Christ's righteousness given to you. So when God looks at you, he's not like, how much good do you have? How much good did you do? How many good thoughts did you have? But he looks at you and he sees the goodness of Christ and that satisfies the wrath of God, right? I hope the word is encouraging you today and is a comfort to you because I'm reminded of uh, how crazy our world is and can be. And maybe you are too. And maybe it's really easy to get caught up in what everybody else gets caught up in. But do you know that we should not perceive the times like the masses do? We should perceive the times under the sovereign hand of God, taking comfort in it, knowing that what God wants today is the same as what he wants for you tomorrow, which is for you to be found faithful. Are you being found faithful today? Are you remembering who's in control of all these things? By the way, this isn't only large-scale, big stuff. This is stuff that's personal to you as well. Every little detail, everything, God has his hand in. And it should be bringing comfort to your heart today. But also know this, God's judgment is coming. And so this should inspire for us a desire to see the lost come to Christ. Don't you agree? There is a day of vengeance coming. Are you okay with just everybody going? Good, good. go on, you deserve it. And if that was God's mentality toward all of us, we all, would, we all deserve it. We all deserve vengeance. We all deserve wrath. But God was full of mercy and grace toward us. Do we want to be full of mercy and grace toward others? Is that the way we want to be? I hope so. So for the unbeliever, no, a day of judgment is coming and there's nothing you can do to escape it except by having faith in Christ. Know that. And today is the day that you call upon Christ in faith and you will have redemption. There's no doubt about it. And once you're his, he never lets you go. But then for the believer, listen, comfort yourself by knowing who's actually in charge here and know that in spite of all the craziness of whatever might come, God, okay, I read from a Habakkuk this morning for our band devotional. And do you know what Habakkuk said? Even if there are no figs, even if there is no grain, even if there are no animals for me to slaughter and eat, even if the worst case scenario happens, the name of the Lord our God is worthy to be praised. I hope you trust in that and know that this morning and that you're conforming your life to that truth. Okay, let's pray.